I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. I'm a historian, author, aggressively fast walker, but lately in a world that promises endless progress, even now in a pandemic, I've realized I just need to be a person. It's hard to give up on the feeling that the life you want is just out of reach, if only you tried. Eat this food, find that relationship, just get the kids graduated or the parents this kind of care. Only then will I feel different, better, whole. But that's not the way this works. When I was 35, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And here's the very fun thing about that. The world loves you better when you are shiny, when you are cheerful, when you still believe that your best life now is right around the corner. I've written multiple books on the history of the idea that you can always fix your life. So I'm going to be the one to say it. There are some things we can change and some things we can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. We can have beauty and meaning, community and love, and we will need each other if we're going to tell the truth. Life is a chronic condition, and there's no cure for being human. Our bodies tell a story, right? Whether we're thick or thin or curvy, heavy in step or shoulders like a swimmer, the deep or light shade of our skin, the width of our noses, the texture of our hair, our pregnant bodies, the ones that move with canes and wheelchairs, with a limp or a tremor, whether we tower above people or look up to meet their eye. Our bodies tell a story, and we find ourselves having to live inside of it, at work, at home, in church, in clubs and book groups. And sometimes, more than we would like, our bodies tell a story that is too hard for others to hear. Or maybe they just didn't want to. And it's one thing to say, screw it, I don't need them. I didn't want that job or need that church. Or, you know, miss being on Twitter without hearing opinions I can't unknow. But usually it's a mixed blessing. We love that place. We love that community. We hunger for them when they're gone. They made us somehow. So when we're stuck with the fundamental problem, what happens when the places we love don't always love us back? Today, I am talking with a dear friend and intellectual powerhouse, Dr. Willie Jennings, about that kind of love. Dr. Willie Jennings is a big deal. He is a professor at Yale Divinity, a Baptist pastor, and the author of many works, including a beautiful book called The Christian Imagination. Theology and the Origins of Race, which rightfully won a lot of awards, including one which was the largest prize for a theological work in North America. So I hope it is obvious to you, dear listener, that Dr. Jennings is one of the most well-respected theologians on our beloved planet. And today we'll be talking about his brand new book, After Whiteness, An Education in Belonging. And for people who are not necessarily familiar with theological education in Ivy League schools, a word of context. They're predominantly white institutions and places where pastors and Christian professionals and academics are all taught together. So it's a strange mix of elite pretension, deep wisdom, and church basement coffee. Dr. Jennings, 
has served <laughs> as the academic dean <laughs> of one such theological school, Duke Divinity School, my place of employment and a place where we have a lot of history. Willie, how ominous did that sound? <laughs> I am so grateful you're here with me. Thank you so much for having this conversation in advance. I'm sorry for whatever I will say. (laughs) Joy to be here with you. Joy to be here with you, Gay. (laughs) We've known each other for, I counted, 15 years, which makes me feel wonderfully old. But (laughs) if I knew you when you were a kid growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, what kind of Willie would I have met? And did you ever imagine you would become a theologian? You know, I never imagined I would be a theologian. Yeah. I, um, I, I used to tell people what I wanted to what I wanted to be right away was a weatherman. Really? <laughs> You're a theological weatherman for sure. I be a weatherman because they look like they always had a job. have a job to have. I prefer your current version where you're like, and there's some heresy coming in from the north and just a light breeze. <laughs> a weatherman. That's so great. You know, had you been around me as a, as a preteen or a teenager, you would have you'd have been around a really soft spoken, mm. uh, really shy, uh, bookish kid who um, loved to laugh and loved to watch people do really crazy things and uh, would make uh, deep mental notes about the craziness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a watcher. (laughs) Thinking to myself, "Mm, that will come in handy later. (laughs) You know, growing up in Grand Rapids was uh, an amazing thing as I look back on it now, given, you know, what I've wound up doing because um, God was in the air. You know, and you know this very well. When you, when you grow up in in Christian subculture, woo, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. see everything that uh, is good to see and everything that is not good to see. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Too early. <laughs> yeah, totally. Childhood. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry that I don't know this, Willie, but like Grand Rapids, I know it now as being a very reformed, very, I know the white religious culture, but was it a predominantly white town at the time? It was. Uh, Grand Rapids was highly segregated, um, redlined, controlled, but it was always hidden. It was never really out front. So, but you, you quickly understood that it was a, it was um, very white, very immigrant, Dutch immigrant. Yeah. And so it had that immigrant feel. Yeah. Um, um, there were other other groups there, um, significant numbers of Polish people, Italians, some Irish, and um, very incredibly densely religious and theological. I remember there used to be the you know in the newspaper they would have the heresy trials. No. Oh yeah. Uh, so you could you could um, if you read this religious section you could find out what what pastors were being brought up for heresy if they, you know, if they didn't properly um, preach the Belgian Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism. Oh, my gosh. So it was a, 
It was a very, very religious um, town, but a very, very racist town at the same time. Oh, yeah. That's what made it so. Yeah. Ergo, my life. Trying to yes, understand yes, how, yes. How, some, how something can be so profoundly, deeply committed to Christianity and so profoundly, deep committed, deeply committed to racism and yeah. racist ways of looking at the world at yeah. the same time. Yes. And um, not skip a beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like you're like my my biography is Grand Rapids, Michigan. I love that. That's right. So you you're this sensitive, incredibly powerfully perceptive young person. What was it? Do you think about the world of ideas that felt like an escape for you? Well, it was the freedom. It yeah. was the freedom to. Um, the freedom to listen and then uh, actually decide whether that that made sense, mm. which Kate, it fit my personality. I mean, had you had you known me as the church kid, you would have you would have understood because my poor pastor, he was a nice man. Yeah. But um, not very bright, to be honest. <laughs> and um, I would constantly ask the man questions and he had this look on his face like, Dear God, kill the boy. <laughs> yes. Who can take this boy away? Who? <laughs> oh. you know, I was a kid and I would say, um, Reverend, um, what you said just now yeah. contradicts what you said yesterday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Reverend, yeah. what you just said doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Could you explain that to me somewhat? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not following what you <laughs> And, you know, this was, you know, and we're talking, you know, 12 years old, 13. Years old. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so great. I believe they call those kids precocious. <laughs> and I'll never forget the, the pastor put my mother aside one day and he said, Mrs. Jennings, I hate to tell you this, but your boy ain't saved. But your boy ain't saved? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my mother said, Reverend, I think he's going to be okay. <laughs> because I questioned everything. I questioned everything. I hate to say <laughs> he, this. Just, he, has, he was having such a hard time with me. Oh, my God. He, that man, you've never seen a minister so happy to see a kid leave town and go to school. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I loved reading this book because I felt I just I love the fact that I could see the the world that you've been able to make by pulling things apart just a bit and letting the bits in between them breathe a little. Mm-hmm. But the cost of your ability to observe so carefully, though, has really been been high, like the way mm-hmm. you describe freedom, like the ability to to notice everything also as as part of your survival. Mm-hmm. I often say that one of the curses that comes with being an, an academic or an intellectual, however you want to define it, is that we are often people who are very sensitive. Yeah. And uh, sensitivity and intellectual curiosity are often two sides of the same coin, which means that yeah. you see things yeah. deeply. But you feel things. Mm-hmm. And so things that might not cut others yeah. deeply. 
yeah. will cut you very yes. deeply. <laughs> because you sense and see. You don't just see, you sense. And uh, I think it's been a part of the my reality in academy that, you know, um, really some pretty deep cuts. Yeah. Well, you did try to explain that to me. I, I mean, honestly, looking back, I, I can see how I was quite naive and had been permitted to remain so because of my privilege. I am really, I'm really sorry that I can, I can see now. I just, I remember this moment where we were walking down the corridor where all the powerful people in our school have their offices. And -hmm. you said, Kate, walking through these hallways as a black man, it's like you have to wear a second skin. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that you were you were trying to say like, no, I can feel so much more like my body is telling a story right now and I can feel so much more than like your senses might be dulled to the story that's being told. Mm-hmm. You were saying it very nicely, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I did realize, <laughs> I did realize much later how much, how much more you were feeling because you could, you could see more clearly. Yeah. This is one of the parts about being in an institution that, you know, people who love to talk about institutions that uh, really often don't grasp as they should that, you know, there's, there's not only institution thinking, but there's institution feeling. It's not only moving through an institution thinking, there's moving through an institution feeling it. Yeah. Feeling what it does well and feeling what it does horribly. Yes. And the horrible things it can do. And so, As you and I both know, there are many people who, when you ask what afflicts their soul, you know, you you have to look at what an institution, especially educational institutions, since that's what we're in, what educational institutions will sometimes do inadvertently, sometimes do really on purpose. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, oh. I really yeah. do want to cut you. Yeah, no, I was uh, trying. Yeah. I am trying to cut you. Yeah, yes. It's a very difficult truth to communicate when the institution that you're in imagines itself as neutral. Mm-hmm. And, and so much of your work has been in in uncovering the racialized identity that is actually like a part of the functioning of our institutions. And, and I've, and I've seen the response, the response is um, really, this is about ideas. Like we are an idea factory. Welcome to this neutrality of ideas. What mm-hmm. kind of neutral self does it imagine? Well, you know, the, um, at the heart of uh, what I consider the the problem with um, moving through educational institutions and moving through the academy, thinking that is that we're just merchants of ideas, is that um, there is, as I say in this book, there's an overarching uh, image of formation that's there driving us. I mean, it's like that uh, ride at, at Disneyland. You know where you know you sit down and and the thing is moving, yeah. And all you can all you hear is it's a small world after all. <laughs> but you know this, this this car is moving all all the time. You're not just stay you're not staying in one yeah. spot. Yeah. But there's um there's something that that's pushing moving this thing forward, and what's moving it forward is to form us all 
form us all mm-hmm. into white, self-sufficient men mm-hmm. who embody three, uh, what I call, demonic virtues. Mm-hmm. Um, a, um, possession, <laughs> control, yeah. and mastery. Mm-hmm. And um, no matter how we say we're only about ideas, yeah. the reality is, is that what enables us to say such a thing and believe such a fantasy is because we have we have entered fully into the aspiration of being formed into that image. Yeah. And that's what makes it so profoundly, so profoundly painful. Mm-hmm. Because many are led to believe that it's possible to to function just as someone who is concerned about ideas yeah and anything else that's on the table shouldn't be on the table when in point of fact there's all kind of stuff on that table yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yes yes but at first you get confused i mean there you're there's this vision the, what you're describing of this vision of sameness, this vision of whiteness, this vision of like that self-sufficient person. And it's, it's one of the only ways that I have understood like how gender functions really, which is just the, the, the thousand little um, signals you get about what makes you seem and feel acceptable. Like there's just a, a, so many little ways that you're being nudged in a certain direction. And right. and we've seen the end result where sometimes all of a sudden you're in the academy, you're from Iowa, but you have a British accent. <laughs> we're not sure why. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. You're just like, I really want to be a serious person. And then, you you know, like Willie, I had fake glasses for like the first three months of that job. I don't think I ever told you that. It was just glass. It was just non-prescription glass. <laughs> but I wanted that minute where in a lecture you take your glasses off and you're like, "Let me tell you more about that," because I just you, you perform. <sighs> you know, my 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 dear friend uh, Paul Myrie, who teaches at the Wallbash Center. He, he often tells a story that um, one of the participants in one of the workshops he was helping to facilitate tells. And it's a young woman who's a professor and she's running her first seminar and she sits back in her chair and then she she puts her hand on her chin and starts rubbing her chin. No. And then she realizes she's doing like her mentor, stroking her beard. <laughs> I don't have a beard. Oh my gosh. If any of us held, like, had a diary for times we spent in institutions where I was like, Dear Diary, I believe things have gotten very out of control. <laughs> <laughs> All of this is tied to the utter reality of self sufficiency. The magnanimous yeah. man, the one who is able. <laughs> Has everything to give. Yes. Yeah. Who who understands, and this is why it's so important because the magnanimous man is one who never apologizes. And we have to say man on purpose here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He never apologizes for his power. Yeah. 
um, he's not prideful. He's just clear-eyed on the power he has and understands that it is power underneath, you know, power within the, the sovereign reality of God, but that God has equipped him so that with this power that is his by God's design, he operates in the world, not given to extremes of either anger or joy, not given to extremes of gluttony or excess uh, or um, needless self-denial. Yeah. And so when you put all that together and you think about the education that all of us move through, yeah, you can start to see that. You can start to see the form there. Yes, that's <laughs> right. You start to see that man. <laughs> and of yes, course, yes. that man. Yeah, has to be has to be a white man. Yeah, and what it means for everyone, male, female, uh, non-binary people, for people of all persuasions, cultures, what later on we would call all races, mm. is that this is what it means to be educated. You're aiming toward that. Yeah. And um, Kate, as you and I both know, the bodies that are laid, uh, are laid on the side of the road yeah. of the many who have never been able to achieve that. Yeah. And the bodies of those who have achieved it and, are, and daily cry their tears inwardly <laughs> <laughs> because they, they <laughs> think they've achieved it and they, they have figured out how to hide the pain of achieving it yeah. is all around us. The academy is yeah. filled with people who are in deep pain yeah. because this is what they were told they had to become in order to be seen. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That really speaks to me, Willie. I just, that really reminds me of um, like one of your great gifts is in mentoring and the I mean generosity with which you have mentored like big groups of young faculty and and mid-career faculty and you know insecure people like me uh, who did a lot of crying in airports and uh, <laughs> I have so many strong memories of of you and we had the privilege of going out to Wabash Indiana where they have this wonderful um what is it called? Like it's it's like a formation program. What do they? What would they call it, Lily? Yes, it's the the pre the pre tenure, or should I say, early career yeah. workshop. Yeah, yeah, and it ended up being um, kind of a like an exhaust valve, like a, a minute for one week in the fall and spring semester for a bit. You you would get to be with other professors from other institutions and just get a second to say. Um, I have to do this. Do you have to do this? And what is your culture like? And um, as in like faculty culture and like, what are, what are, are, are am, am I going in the direction I was hoping I would go in my life? And it was wonderful because uh, you had a minute to ask yourself if this is the way it was supposed to be. Yeah, and yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll never forget that um, there was an exercise where there was a big circle of chairs where everyone mm. sat. Yeah. And if you wanted, you could go into the middle of the circle and sit down and respond to a question or idea. And people were kind of digging into their hopes and, and, and sort of like bigger emotions. And you said, 
and I'll never forget this. No, if you'd like, please share. What has your body meant to your institution? And I, that thought blew me away because I'd never thought of it like that. And I, before I could even finish a breath, I got up, sat down in the middle of the circle. And I think maybe only you or very few people knew that I'd been suffering from an undiagnosed paralysis in both arms. And I heard myself saying, I am a profound disappointment. And like, you knew that someone dear to me had filed a complaint against me with the administration that I wasn't sufficiently disabled and that I was in fact taking advantage of the system. And I, I don't mean to compare our experiences of disability with racism, but I saw how ably that you knew exactly how to read the story of whether or not we experience ourselves as disappointments, mm-hmm. whether we have met this unarticulated standard of the mastered self. Like I knew I'd failed. I just didn't know how to, how to mourn that, yeah. I guess. And you were so good at, um, at accounting for the cost of that sort of fragility. And I, I don't mean to congratulate you on emotional labor that you shouldn't have to, to do, but I, um, I've just been struck in your work again and again, um, how your experience has opened you up to being able to do really careful math about how people, uh, experience the deficits of what their formation is always requiring of them. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I always appreciate the the power of your vulnerability, my dear friend, and um, the the truth that you courageously always speak. And so what does that mean? It means that there is such a need, especially at this moment, (laughs) to, um, to rethink the whole point of education. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that, that's really, I think, especially at this moment, what we really do need to understand belonging as um, a crucial idea around which to rethink the overarching image of what we're educating people toward. I mean, and, and, and yeah. you, know, you and I are in the business of theological education, but I think this is true for all of education that um, the, the self-sufficient man is, um, haunts all of Western education yeah, and um, the need to put him to death yeah. and to um, give life to a different vision that actually has belonging as the overarching goal for um, education formation. That would, that would really be great. Yes. It, w- it would have, you know, obviously it would mean something very different. It would have been a very different education you and I both had to yes. go through, and especially as, as young professors trying to figure out how to how yeah. to be professors. Ooh, yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> good Lord. Oh my yeah. God. Let's talk more about this belonging. I love that. How do we how do we sink into that vision of like like what is the opposite of the kind of obsessive self-mastery, the 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 fake invulnerability, the that we're that we're supposed to be launching atoms out into the world, little self-contained. Yes. When really, yeah. I mean, our experiences are 
whether it's our, our bodies or our circumstances or, but like all of us are, man, we're just like, we're fragile. We're, we are dependent at our best. (laughs) We are needy and, and messy. And I'm just thinking of all the ways in which like your book is so beautifully poetic, but that's another call to like, Mm -hmm. to not just know things through theological proof texting or like giant lists Mm -hmm. that like we, we learn and know and find our being in in a much more embodied and wider way than our educational system has set up. Yes. I think you just, you just said what's at the heart of it. How, how do we live into um, embodiment? How, how do we, take hold of um, the fullness of, of life lived with others. And yeah. I, I think, and you and I both know, all of this has to come back down to little decisions. Yes, 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 <laughs> little yes. decisions that we <laughs> have to make yeah. that, um, you know, it, they take courage to think toward people. As opposed to thinking over people, yes. <laughs> and, you know, and then to, to to think about a different vision of the design of courses, a design of being a professor, the design of life. Yeah, you know how do you how do you um, design for a healthy form of attention and affection and resistance? Yeah, you know what I try to do is I try to. Um, after all those many years of of being in you know in the as we say in the bowels of an institution, yeah. <laughs> I try, no, it's glamorous. To 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 um, put on the table the little things that have to be done. Yeah, that signal one crucial thing. This in the case, it's, it's so simple. The one crucial thing that has to be signal. By the intellectual life is I want you. I want to be with you. I want yeah. to gather people together, yeah. not as my servants. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> now listen but, to me. But, but as my companion. Yeah. And that um, gathering people together becomes the showing I want. The showing I. The showing is not that. I look like this self-sufficient, clearly in control, clearly in possession, clearly having mastery, intellectual. The showing that I want is I am, I am someone who are, who's bringing people together who would normally not want to be together. And I am showing the joy and the excitement of communion that I just state, communion that I that I am able to conjure belonging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that, that, whether you are a theologian, a historian, a nurse, a chemist, that is a worthy uh, goal of formation, far more worthy than what, what we have been given, because that one means if, if you are someone aiming toward cultivating that reality of belonging, that means you are, you are now putting whatever work you're going to be doing in the best possible context, the best possible light, the most, and the most life-giving form that it can possibly be in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you describe this, it just, the 
the image I have is, is just the, the idea that like so much of us, the way we're formed in whatever profession, the, the, the image is like feudalism, right? It's, it's so strictly mm-hmm. hierarchical. There's information we wanted it and it's structured from the top down. And then we thought, you know, if I just buy in more and more, I will become this mythical person that that has finally achieved. I just think your word is so right, like mastery. I will have arrived at this mountaintop. And like the problem is, of course, along the way is, is that like at the heart of this is that like we went into we went into these formation processes in the first place because we could we could see something and feel something and we wanted to know we wanted to be remade by this knowledge and you're right, right like that those that those structures are preventing us from being able to be cracked open to each other's experiences and not just like caught up in this endless echo chamber of 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 never having really ever become that person yeah and i tell you um the possibilities are really wonderful for rethinking especially at this moment rethinking yeah of education and yeah my hope is that though that you know we can get people to start asking a different set of questions about you know this whole world yeah the intellectual the intellectual life I'm arguing the intellectual life should be a place of gathering. It should, you know, this is the way you know someone has entered fully into the intellectual life because they are really, in whatever they're doing, they're they're causing people to see each other in a a different light. They're facing each other. Yeah. Yeah, Because this this person, in whatever this endeavor is, um, you know, I still see that person, <laughs> yeah. but the, by seeing that person, I'm also now seeing others because this is the way that person does their work. This is how they understand their work. Yeah. Yes. You know, um, that always seemed to me to be like the very best part of, you know, and, and, and anyone gets it when they read a book or, but the the beauty and the intimacy of entering into somebody else's mind mm-hmm. and and like just how much uh, just how much like love that feels like to me yeah yeah the reality of it is is that education should at the end of the day be not only about love but about creating love yes yeah uh, and that that's that's what belonging always points to the possibility of creating love. I see exactly what you mean. For some reason, truth, as ugly as it, as it is, is always a little bit beautiful. And like, even just yeah. looking at it together always really feels like, like, man, I really, I really saw something. Dr. Willie Jennings, you are disciplined in the art of hope. And I love talking with you. Thanks so much for doing this with me. My pleasure. My pleasure, great one. Anytime I get to be with you, it's a holiday. (laughs) There's a hunger in us, isn't there? To belong. To feel ourselves slip into the grooves of the communities and places we love. And sometimes we get the permission we're looking for. And sometimes we don't. So 
here's a blessing for when your body doesn't quite belong and when you need a moment to let that reality breathe a little. Blessed are you, dear one, who have been told that you are too big, too loud, too brown, too weird, too old, too much. You belong here. Blessed are you, you who navigate your workplace while juggling parenting and pregnancy, aging and technological hurdles that leave you always playing catch up. Blessed are you who have hidden your symptoms or been quiet about your pain, whose gender or race or disability has taught you institutional gymnastics. Blessed are you who make space for others, who notice the hurts said and unsaid. And you who make institutions bigger, more generous, and set longer tables for everyone to be seated. Belonging is strange and long work. Work, as Dr. Jennings believes, that is disciplined by hope. So may we learn how to see hope in our own bodies, in our own longings and formation and places where we seek shelter. There will always be the loneliness of living itself, of trying and surviving and living inside our own skin. So may we not despise our desire to see and be seen, and for the hope that our hungers will lead us back to each other at last. We are in the season of Lent, the time in the church calendar that challenges us all to turn ourselves toward the truth that the world is both terrible and beautiful, and somehow God meets us there. I've been posting a video every morning on Instagram and Facebook, as well as sending out daily email reflections to help orient our day. So if that's your thing and you want to join along, visit katebowler.com slash Lent to sign up for free. Today's episode was made possible by our lovely partners, the Lilly Endowment, the Duke Endowment, and Duke Divinity School, who support our Faith in Media project. We are so grateful for their generosity and investment in what we do. And of course, my team, who I am completely obsessed with, Jessica Ritchie, our executive producer, Harriet Putman, our associate producer, Keith Weston, our sound designer, and the rest of the Everything Happens crew who make this project so much fun. Dan Wells, AJ Walton, Mary Jo Clancy, JJ Dickinson, Lana Stewart, Kelly Dunlap, Aaron Lane, Jeb, and Sammy, thank you. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>